Welcome to the podcast program, Beyond Clinical Medicine, What They Don't Teach You in Residency. I'm Rob Strauss, Team Health's Chief Medical Training Officer, and this podcast is one of our series discussing opiates and the devastation of addiction. We've experienced addiction among our friends, our colleagues, patients, and for some, ourselves. Today, specifically, we will speak with a healthcare provider who went through addiction and suffered severely as a result, loss of license, jail time. And you may ask, is there a positive outcome? Well, you'll hear directly from our guest, Kristen Waite Labat. Kristen is currently the director of client care and head nurse coach with Veritas, a virtual treatment program for nurses with substance use and mental health disorders. She founded and serves as chair of Wisconsin Peer Alliance for Nurses, a nonprofit providing peer support for nurses with substance use issues. And she is an emergency department nurse. She published the book, which I've read, An Unlikely Addict. She's a certified addiction registered nurse and a certified professional recovery coach. She's committed to making a difference. Kristen, thank you for all you do and welcome to the program. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for inviting me to be a part of your podcast. Yeah, it's a it's a pleasure. After reading your book, I think it's important to share what it was like growing up in your family as a as a bit of a background. Would that be okay? Yeah, so I grew up in Milwaukee, Wisconsin which might be explanation enough, but if not, (laughs) um, I was born in the late sixties. I am the middle of three daughters. My older sister had some developmental difficulties and required a fair amount of attention from my parents. A younger sister, five years younger, also requiring a fair amount of, of patience and attention time being the baby of the family. I was a little bit independent and reasonably intelligent, so kind of left to my own devices as my parents took care of my other two siblings. Uh, I was often told, go go out and play, go outside and play, go to your room and play. The message I got was, go away, you're in our way, we have things we have to do, you're in the way. Uh, So I acted out a little bit sometimes, uh, did things, you know, that certainly irritated my parents. Uh, When I did, there were consequences. My parents were strict. You know, it was, you do what we say and you do it when we tell you to without a whole lot of emotion, you know, just do it um, or there are consequences. Uh, Those consequences were, we got spanked. Uh, I was spanked with a belt uh, with a, you know, plastic, big plastic stirring spoon. Uh, We were grounded for sometimes months at a time. And my father yelled a lot. Uh, He yelled when we were in trouble. He yelled when he was angry. He just yelled a lot. And, you know, so it was difficult. It was stressful. It made me feel kind of insignificant. There's one example that I think was pretty telling. You were, as I recall, told to be home in ninth grade from a football game that you went to by 10 o'clock. Can you tell us? What happened and the result? Sure. Uh, So I had met a boy at the football game and he walked me home. Uh, We were standing outside my house at 10 o'clock. I was home when I was supposed to be. I was sure that 
my parents had seen me. We were right in front of the big picture window in their living room and they were sitting in the living room. Um, and he and I talked for a period of time. I don't remember now how long, but we talked for some time and, and then I went in the house. Uh, my parents were furious because I wasn't in the house at 10 o'clock. And I said, but I was outside. You saw me outside and that was not good enough. I needed to be in the house. Uh, so they actually grounded me from all future football games for the rest of high school. <laughs> I was in ninth grade. So until, you know, I was not able to go to another football game during high school uh, because of that very, you know, from what I imagined a very small, if at all, even an infraction. Yeah, that's just, I thought was amazing. A four-year grounding for as you stated, in my opinion, not an infraction at all. But how do you think that those experiences affected some of your later relationships? Well, I think quite profoundly. Uh, I I think mo the, the thing that most affected was my father and the relationship he and I had, or maybe didn't have, um, and that yelling that he did, that um, right. He, I call him a rageaholic and mm -hmm. in his defense, he's not that way anymore, but he certainly was when I was young. Uh, and so as I grew and like went off to college, to kind of start my life, I had little or no self-esteem, no self-worth. And so when I picked companions or boyfriends, uh, they were not nice people. They were mean uh, oftentimes they drank a lot, uh, didn't have jobs. It was, I saw myself as needing to take care of them and almost like the meaner they were, the more I was drawn to them. Um, and I, I mean, I see that as a direct now, as I look back as a direct result of that relationship I had with my dad, uh, my dad's not an alcoholic, but he certainly drank a fair amount when he was younger. Uh, and I, I think I just that's what I understood a man to be. And that's what I looked for. In reading your story, you you did have uh, several relationships. And as you've described, they, they weren't all supportive and, and positive. And at a certain point, while um, a healthcare worker, uh, you got pregnant. Um, and while you were uh, in that healthcare facility, you met uh, and developed a wonderful, loving relationship with an older co-worker and her husband and moved in with them until a tragedy in their own lives required you to find a new living and arrangement. Tell us about them and what it meant to you to have that kind of relationship and <clears throat> how it was different for you. Yeah. Uh, they were just wonderful, Jim and Marion, their names are. So when, when I was in college, I developed a definite drinking problem. And as a result of that, uh, ended up pregnant by a man who had, I had no intention of pursuing a long-term relationship with, broke it off with him, uh, and found myself with a lot of fear and anxiety because now I had this child coming and was Anyway, I'm very afraid. Uh, I it told all this to my coworker, Marion. Uh, we worked at a nursing home together, got along really well, shared this with her. And she went home and talked to her husband and came back to me and said, we'd like for you to move in with us. And it wasn't just offering me a room 
for a very low cost. Um, they invited me to their dinner table. They took me on family get togethers. You know, they went camp camping one summer and they took me along and I developed a relationship with their daughter. And so it was a family. It wasn't just, here's a room to rent. It was come be a part of our family. Mm -hmm. um, so I got to see for the first time what it was like to be cared about. And that was really special and meant so much to me. After I had the baby, their daughter, who I got to know really well, uh, who was in a very abusive relationship, um, her husband killed her, shot her um, in front of Marion. And of course, she and Jim were both just devastated. Uh, it became apparent that they would need the room that I was renting for the three children that were left behind that they were going to care for. And so they let me know that I needed to move out. But again, they didn't just tell me, you need to move out. They talked to their friends and they helped me get into a low-income housing apartment, uh, talked to another friend and helped me to get a job so that I could pay for the apartment. I mean, they, they really uh, went all out to help me and make sure that I had what I needed to be successful so I could finish college and I could, you know, go on to, to raise my daughter by myself. So uh, they were a huge, huge support to me and uh, my home away from home family for sure. Well, it sounds, sounds fabulous and providing kind of friend and almost parental relationship, family relationship that um, was somewhat new to you. I want to transition now. You, I think at some point decided that you needed to go on a diet, you'd gain more weight than you liked. And at the end of that, you you done well, but you decided to have liposuction and had some pretty moderate pain and had been prescribed Percocet. Can you describe what happened there? Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned in college, I developed a, a love for alcohol. It kind of made me feel better, eased all those anxieties and that insecurity I felt. When I had that Percocet, you know, initially the pain was bad and I took the Percocet and it helped the pain. Uh, but once the surgical pain was gone and I was taking the Percocet, it helped me to feel better, much like alcohol did, but I didn't have the same side effects as I did with alcohol. Uh, I didn't stumble around, act stupid, you know, smell bad, have hangovers. I could take Percocet feel better, like have that same sense of relief for my feelings and those, all those emotions I was trying to never acknowledge and feel. Uh, it did that better than alcohol. Uh, and I really liked that. And I took the, you know, the rest of my prescription, even though the surgical pain was better, called in for a refill uh, and took all of those, even though the, you know, I didn't need them for the surgical pain. It was, uh, for my emotional pain. Although I didn't acknowledge that at the time, I always had a reason for taking them. I had a headache or I had back pain or whatever. I always had a reason to take them. So things went beyond Percocet <clears throat> and uh, leading to uh, patterns of behavior that I'm, I just call kind of a fall from grace. Uh, can you describe that spiral a little bit? Yeah. 
after that Percocet was gone, over the next couple of years, I would find ways to get pills. So uh, I remember going to my doctor and exaggerating back pain or completely making up pain and getting, she would prescribe me Vicodin. Uh, my first husband, when I was dating him, uh, he's a carpenter and he would go to the ER and getting, you know, he got hurt on occasion. He would get pain pills every time he went uh, and he'd share his pain pills with me. So I did that kind of thing for the next couple of years. And then uh, around the year 2000, I was working in an emergency room and it just occurred to me that we throw away a lot of really good drugs and I started taking them. It wasn't a conscious decision. Like I put any thought into it and said, oh, I'm going to be sneaky. And it was just, I had a case one day I had wasted, I don't remember what the drug was, uh, but I had waste left over and I put it in my pocket and I took it home and I took it IV. Uh, I remember that feeling very similar to when I first took that Percocet, kind of an aha moment. Like, wow, that is really amazing. Like the, the relief I got was fast, you know, it was immediate because it was IV. Uh, and that really, I just really, um, that really appealed to me. Uh, so anytime after that, that I had any waste medication, I took it. I did that for the next couple of years, convincing myself it was no big deal because it was garbage. It was just, we were throwing it away. So it's not a big deal. Of course it was a big deal, but that's what I told myself. Somewhere around the year 2003, I had uh, fentanyl as a leftover waste medication. And I took that fentanyl that evening and it was the same kind of a half feeling like, holy cow, it's so much stronger than anything else I had taken before. Uh, but I had an immediate craving for more. I was going through a divorce at the same time. My first husband left, although it was a bad marriage and it was a good thing that he, that we were separating. I felt like an absolute failure. My anxiety was skyrocketed. I had a, a second daughter in my marriage and was now faced with being a single mother of two children. Um, I was depressed and that fentanyl made it better, uh, at least for a little while. Uh, so I found myself then after that first fentanyl really um, looking for meds at work. So if I didn't get any waste med in a shift, I would steal fentanyl. I started stealing it from the stock. Uh, didn't take them too long after that to figure out it was me. I was eventually stealing only fentanyl and I was stealing it every time I was there. So then, you know, they caught me after, I'm not sure exactly how long, I think it was about nine months though. Uh, and I was fired. Uh, certainly when you're caught doing such things, um, I was fired, ended up losing my nursing license and was charged with 26 felonies in uh, the summer of 2004 that happened. So by that fall, I had pled that down to a misdemeanor. I had taken a job in a doctor's office as a medical secretary. You know, if I couldn't be a nurse, at least I could hang out in a doctor's office and still work a bit with patients. Uh, and almost immediately upon getting that job and starting it, I started calling in prescriptions for myself under that very kind doctor's name who had given me a chance uh, at this new job. Uh, so after a few months of that, because once I started doing that, I couldn't stop that, uh, the calling in prescriptions. And uh, in January of 2005, I was caught 
uh, arrested again, charged with nine felonies that time. One of them stuck, so I am a felon today. Uh, and I ended up spending about four months incarcerated. Uh, I do wanna say though that the governor of Wisconsin, Tony Evers, did grant me a pardon for my felony this year. So 17 years later, um, I'm still a felon, but I have the forgiveness of the state of Wisconsin, which is a big deal. First of all, I'm so sorry for the awful experiences. And I, I know that the jail time was, the prison time was particularly difficult, not knowing when or even if you were going to get out. There was a great deal of confusion around that. And, but you did. So I'm going to fast forward here because I, I, I think you've described to some degree how low it got, but you turned it around and success required a heroic effort on your part, but doesn't happen without the love and commitment of others who love and believe in you. The foreword of your book is written by your aunt, who continued to marvel at your accomplishments and not, quote, the poor life choices, end quote. She compares you to a, a dragonfly, uh, vulnerable during periods of its life cycle, but continually molting and maturing. And so I, I guess my question is, can you share the importance of the support of others when going through this? Absolutely. Um, I'm fairly certain I wouldn't be where I am today without all of that support from many family members, including my parents and my sister. Uh, my older sister was estranged for a little while, but so my younger sister and my parents um, and my aunts and uncles and so many friends really um, held me up during that time. When I was in jail, as angry as they were, because understandably they were angry uh, at me, they never left. They came to visit me, even when they didn't probably want to very much. Um, they wrote me letters. Uh, when I got out of jail, they were still there. They picked me up. They, my sister, I lived with her. You know, they supported me financially. Uh, they supported me emotionally which was something I was not used to, not in my family. Uh, it helped me to see that, you know, maybe my uh, memories and the things that I learned in childhood were not completely accurate. Not that things didn't happen the way they did, because they did, uh, but just knowing my parents did the best that they could and that they too could change, you know, seeing what happened to me helped them kind of see how they could be different. Uh, so they supported me and really held me up through those early years when I had no money. I had no, um, I was just so low and so completely devastated that it was very difficult to move forward. Uh, so they were there for me and honestly would not have been able to make it through that without them. I know you had a bumpy and kind of harrowing path to sobriety. How, how long have you been drug and alcohol free? I've been in recovery for 17 years now, um, since January 18, 2005, the day I was arrested. I have not had a return to alcohol or drug use in any shape or form. Uh, but like you said, it has been bumpy. It hasn't been like, oh, I'm sober now, and that means everything is great. Uh, it's been challenging. Uh, but it is amazing to me how, because my life was challenging before 
too. It's not like, it's, I don't know, it's not any worse, maybe just different, um, but it's amazing how being in recovery and dealing with challenges is much more manageable than um, trying to deal with all of that stuff in addition to a substance use disorder. Uh, so lots of challenges, but really good outcome and so much gratitude. So, so much. So, uh, Kristen, tell us what you do now and, and how you feel about your life at this point. Well, I do a lot of different things. Um, all of them really are recovery-based and meaningful. Uh, I got my nursing license back in 2007. I petitioned the nursing board after much encouragement from my therapist. I really thought my license was gone forever, uh, but it's not. Um, I was able to join a monitoring program. Uh, there are five years here in Wisconsin, and they, they do things like urine drug screens and therapy and 12-step meetings uh, to make sure that you're safe to practice nursing. Um, so I completed that program and I have my full licensure back. So I work in an emergency room um, now, emergency department nurse, which is very exciting. Um, I love that. And then I also work, as you mentioned in, in the intro, as director of client care and head nurse recovery coach uh, for Veritas. So it's a telehealth intensive outpatient program for healthcare workers. It's not just nurses, uh, although nurses are my favorite, of course. Um, in that role, I get to work with nurses as they're just first experiencing all of that trauma, really, of you know getting discovered at work, losing their job, losing their license, having um, legal issues. And I get to coach them through that early period, which is something I so wish I had had at the beginning. Uh, and so such a meaningful thing for role for me to to have now. Uh, and and then in that work, I discovered that there are states that offer peer support programs for nurses in recovery. And um, another thing I thought would have been really awesome to have back when I joined the program uh, with the nursing board. So I started one of those here in Wisconsin last year, so in 2021. And we offer peer support to nurses who are you know, either in recovery or trying to get there uh, or working with a monitoring board. And twice a week, we meet, meet virtually 7 p.m. Uh, as a group. They're, the meetings are led by nurses in recovery. Uh, and so it's me and then three other women. And we just share and support each other and use our experiences to help you know those who are just starting over go through that. Kristen, your transparency and honesty is is really impressive. And I know that you made a decision about that pretty early on in your recovery and describe it as making your life easier to share what had happened. Can you tell us a little about that? Yeah, I mean, I think that sharing started with the release of my book. <laughs> um, I had started writing that book just as a exercise with my therapist as a way to get all of that stuff out because I had such a hard time sharing it. Um, I just felt like I had to keep that all hidden and, and private inside. And so she told me, write it and get it out. Um, and then after some time, uh, you know, as we met weekly and I shared about how far I was getting in the writing, she encouraged me to publish it, uh, letting, just kind of telling me she thought people would really benefit from reading the story. I wasn't really excited about that at first, 
Um, it took me some years to write the book, but by the time I had finished it, I came to a realization that maybe there are other people struggling that might might be feel supported by reading someone's story such as that. Uh, so I published it and since then have just felt, like you said, a relief. It's almost like a release just being able to talk about it and feel supported by other people. Um, there is so much stigma surrounding substance use disorders, addiction, if you will. Um, and the ability to share our stories with each other, um, and even more importantly, with people who don't suffer from them, can help to, in a couple of ways. It helps people understand that it can happen to anybody. Um, it happened to me. It can happen to you. It can happen to your neighbor, your brother, your sister. It can happen to anybody. And the more people that share their stories, the more people will understand that. Uh, and I think the other thing it does is it helps to encourage conversation. So if I am here talking to you openly about um, my use and how I have recovered from it, it hopefully will help people have that conversation about their loved one. Maybe that's struggling, or maybe they don't know anybody who's struggling, but they really probably do. And maybe it will just kind of open their eyes uh, to see it and to accept it instead of trying to hide it and make it go away. You have made a remarkable transition. And as your therapist said, and you came to realize, you do make a big difference by sharing your story. And I just want to personally thank you for sharing it. Your, your book was very moving to me. You are a remarkable person, and it's a remarkable story. So thank you so much, Kristen. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for letting me share my story with you today. You bet. And again, thanks to you, Kristen, and to our listeners for joining this podcast. My goal is to serve you by discussing topics that are important to you. Please let me know what is of particular interest by communicating to me at beyondclinicalmedicine.org. Thank you. Thank you.